For March 8th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 662. Is it lost? Is it Howard the Duck? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are hanging out and talking about the things uh, that we love. We enjoy them more when we enjoy them together, and I enjoy nothing more than my weekly conversation with Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete, how are you doing? I'm good, Matt. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, we've had a series, a series of storied two-handers, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just the two of us, right? Just, like we've been in our own world together. Like uh, exactly, like it's uh we've been sort of shut off from the rest of the uh overthinking it podcast universe, you know? But uh if tonight that series were to come to an end, it would be a kind of series finale, wouldn't it? I suppose after a fashion. After a fashion. And in a series finale, it's great to have a, you know, a, a character that uh is beloved, much beloved that you haven't seen in a while uh come back, especially if that character can come back in a way that is sort of surprising or sort of confounds expectations or uh does a lot of scenes with himself. Is it is it not so? He asked Socratically. <laughs> Rhetorically, he answered, uh, it is not. I mean, it is. <laughs> well, what we did, Pete, was we took all of the disassembled parts of Mark Lee and we put them back together with evil intent and we yes. came up with the T-1000. No, it's actually just Mark Lee. Mark, it's great to have you on the on the show. I am the living, breathing, talking, walking ship of Theseus Paradox. <laughs> That's it. What, I, I, in, a, in a way, right? You know, the bits travel uh, from my computer and are disassembled to the internet and then come back to your computers and then are in turn are disassembled and reassembled into your ears as you're listening to it now. So are you really listening to us? I, I mean, I, I made a, I mean, no joke. I made a similar point to Pete when we, uh, when we were discussing the, the late Breaking Bad episode, Ozymandias. And, uh, he thought I was full of it, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm right there <laughs> with you. But, uh, it is not enough to have a single character return. Characters from all over the, uh, all over the cinematic universe have to return or the podcast universe in our, our case. So here's what we did. We put, we took apart all the parts of the disassembled parts of Jordan Stokes and we put them back together with evil intent and we got Matt Belinky. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm doing okay. You cannot see, but I am wearing an amazing new costume for this podcast. I love that. And we took apart all the disassembled parts of Matt Belinky and put them together with evil intent. What we were left with, astonishingly, was Jordan Stokes. Jordan, it's always a pleasure to have you. Kind of weird how it worked out that I was Matt and, and he was me. It would have been real inconvenient if I was, you know, one, one of the other stable irregulars. If you were some, someone else. Um, all right. So uh, we are here. Um, to overthink the one streaming sensation that the whole internet has been talking about this weekend. Coming to America 2. No, not coming to America 2. The one that's on Disney Plus. Raya and the Last Dragon. No, not Raya and the Last Dragon. It's, it's the, uh, it's the finale to WandaVision, uh, which as I, uh, as exactly as I predicted, 
is uh is a show where there was two worlds a uh a cute theatrical one and then a more interesting one and the show became entirely about the more interesting one was it in fact more interesting though we're going to do an old fashioned question of the week uh and and uh here it is panel uh in and well, let's do this in alphabetical order just just for old time's sake uh panel what was your favorite moment that was not in the WandaVision finale? What is your favorite moment of WandaVision, of your own WandaVision headcanon, of your own predictions, of uh, a scene that the writers must have at least considered because of its extreme, uh, you know, thematic consistency and plot relevance, uh, but did not make it into the uh into the the final cut of the of the show that was a bunch of cgi port uh punching followed by a sagobai at a portal what was your favorite scene that did not appear in the wandavision season finale all spoilers all books uh for the rest of the podcast so uh stop it now if you are waiting to watch it drink because first in the alphabet is not peter fenzel god it's been a while since i've said that it's matt belinky mm-hmm <laughs> So how could we forget the scene at the end where she is in the sword detention center where she has given herself up willingly because she knows that Vision would want her to accept responsibility for the hurt and, and the, the evil that she's caused. And even though Hayward was a villain, uh, he was right that she was the bad guy and she needs to face up to it. So she's in the detention cell uh, on her own. Obviously, she could stroll out at any time, but she doesn't because she is a good guy. And uh, then she closes her eyes and there's a montage where we see her appear in a shared dream of all the people of Westview, that they're all gathered in the sort of town square in the moonlight. And she speaks to them and she says that she can't undo the pain and the hurt that she's caused. But what she can do is offer them a lifetime of good dreams and no nightmares and that that she, she sort of goes into their minds and tries to remove some of the some of the trauma um and and basically just just takes a moment to sort of apologize and and recognize the fact that she's done bad things and that uh you know she's supposed to be better than that instead of i don't know just flying away without a word yeah interesting all set to the all set to the the haunting strains the haunting whistling hook of billy eilish's bad guy right yeah, it's like it's like a like a sad Sokovian uh, folk rendition <laughs> of bad guy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. String quartet a la Bridgerton. Uh love that. All right. Uh drink, uh, because he's second in the alphabet, our friend Peter Fenzel. Oh man. I you know, for me the favorite my favorite scene that didn't happen was that really fun after credit scene that cashed out Darcy's character, uh-huh. right? You know, cause, cause it was so interesting to watch Darcy's character kind of show up and we know her from the Thor franchise and we've seen her in the Thor movies, but we don't necessarily know why she would be here in particular and why she had all the information about why everything was working. And in particular, Leo, why did she know so much about the specific events of Infinity War, even the events that had been turned back by Thanos through some sort of means, Darcy knew all these things. Darcy, the escape artist. Darcy, who says in the same scene, you know, uh, I'm notoriously self-involved. I would never help anybody. Darcy, who then doesn't really appear or have a conversation short of running a car into somebody for the entire rest of the story. For me, the best scene that didn't happen was when uh, Wanda encountered Darcy or Jimmy Wu encountered Darcy after it was all over. And, and Jimmy Wu asked her what the hex was like. And she said, well, I was just a housewife. 
right? I didn't actually get to meet anybody. And they're all like, wait, that wasn't you? And we cut to the basement of the witch house and we see Darcy, aka Kat Dennings, coming down to the Darkhold book where she drops her disguise, becomes Loki, steals the book, and vanishes. What? It was so crazy. It was such a surprise, man. It, it, it was the Loki shows coming up, right? It was such a great tie-in. It really got you really invested in and salivating for that show just right away. And I'm so glad uh, that it exists in my mind because, of course, they were never going to put it, anything like that in the show. But anyway. Loki, Loki <laughs> yeah, Loki is going to do some real damage with the Darkhold, right? Oh, for sure. Always. I mean, Loki's going to – Loki could do damage with a kitchen spoon, but with a book <laughs> – the book of the damned? Oh, man. Hold on to, hold on to your horned hats. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next in the alphabet, drink, because you're getting a little toasty from all the drinking. It's Mark Lee. My favorite scene that didn't happen, but it's still plausible uh, that's out there somewhere in the, in the multiverse, is the um, – X-Men, shocking X-Men tie-ins that we were absolutely led to believe would happen, given the presence of Fox X-Men Quicksilver and um, the line that Monica Rambeau's uh, genetic material had been rewritten, right, because she had passed through the hex uh, enough, enough times. Okay, so hear me out on this, right? Shocking reveal that uh, the hex, as it expanded, somewhere touched upon an ice detention center where a teenage Guatemalan boy... Um, suddenly discovers that he has the power to bend metal and escape the cell that he has been uh, contained in. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Magneto is born and is is somewhere out there in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, come on. It was right there, right? All the X-Men stuff. It was right there. But he's Guatemalan now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, you know, basically, like, uh, Pete, we, we, and, and everyone else on this, too, we've pitched so many different ideas for a way to reboot the Marvel Cinem- uh, the X-Men universe and integrate them into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Pete, you had a great idea about making Magneto uh, uh, a, a Cambodian refugee, right, you know, with the landmines and, uh, and the, uh, all the, the, the genocide in that country. Um, you know, all, all, all a great pitch for sure. But like, if you really want to like go there in a political way that Disney really wouldn't would never do uh, in a thousand years, um, sure, like make it about um, you know, immigrants detained uh, in the United States in uh, inhumane ways, and make Magneto one of those guys. Wow, that's uh, that yeah, yeah, yeah quite. It was powerful. It was a powerful moment that didn't happen in the mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in the uh, WandaVision. All right, uh, drink because uh, we all need to forget. It's Jordan Stokes. Hey, so my absolute favorite scene was the scene where Wanda or Vision or the writers, for that matter, cared enough about these two children that they created and gave names and personalities and really specifically underlined the fact that they had the ability to feel fear and pain, where any of those people cared enough about them, even enough to stay in the room while they died. I loved that scene. That didn't happen. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. Brutal. But fair. But fair. (laughs) But, but man it would be it would be hard to watch your children dematerialize and that would be two sad goodbyes at a portal <laughs> or three three they were twins they're like in full house you know it's not like it a really party does, like, you could just skip because you have other plans or you just want to watch netflix <laughs> it's like oh it would be boring sorry go ahead matt no it's just like I, it makes me think that like once you have kids it's so hard to find couple time right it's so hard to like find time for date night and it is true that if we were in a situation where where we were all being consigned to oblivion 
I wouldn't have time to have like a special moment with my wife because we'd be so busy trying to like, you know, shepherd the kids through their untimely demise. Um, and so that the, the show has to cheat. It's just sort of like, you know, you know, uh, the, uh, leave them upstairs to face the oncoming red, uh, the, the red tide uh, by themselves so that we could have this romantic moment downstairs. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like in the real world, it would all be ruined. Yeah, and you're not, Jordan. You're not convinced by the idea that they were that they put them to sleep so that they were unconscious and actually didn't suffer through the uh, through the thing, and they gave them like a last moment of kind of loving family comfort rather than a last moment of abject terror. Not not convinced. Oh no, no. I mean, I think that that far it makes sense. But then walking out of the room afterwards rather than staying and like, you know, stroking their foreheads until the wall goes through them and also not mentioning them to Vision when they're downstairs together. Like the the fact that they walked out of the room and they were just like, okay, they don't exist now. I mean, that is sort of what it's like when you finally get your kids to go to sleep on any random weeknight. You're like. Oh, finally. <laughs> but not on this particular night, not in this particular context. That That's the part that uh, that struck me as a, mm, a screenwriting decision that I might have made differently were it me doing the screenwriting. That's well, you know, mine is going to be connected to yours because my favorite uh, moment was when they tied up the whole television show conceit. Uh, you remember it, don't you? From the from the beginning of the of the series, you remember it. The television show conceit. You remember it that every episode was like a, a different genre of sitcom or a, a uh, not genre. They were all family sitcoms, but oh, a different. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah, you it remember. It was a show it, about television. The, the, the television show. show can, you remember what it, show? don't you? All right, sorry. Yeah. I'll stop. I'll stop. Uh, um, sandbagging here, but they tied all of that up and also referenced one of the most famous finales in all of television history by zooming out at the end and realizing that all of Westview was in a snow globe and that the two children, the two twins were actually just shaking the snow globe and looking into it and imagining, uh, that the whole series happened, imagining it, um, in their heads. That is what, uh, you know, that is the, the thing that, that I remember. So, okay. It seems like there were a lot of, there were a lot of fan theories, you know, and, um, and a lot of sort of speculation that, that did not come to fruition. And it ended up with a lot of CGI punching. The biggest reveal, I suppose, that was a reveal was the the reveal of cataract which happened in the the episode 8 after credit scene and um you know it seemed not to uh, and and that the the uh, other than kind of the the psychological one other than it is a trauma response other than like uh, Wanda all of the the kind of formative or traumatic moments in Wanda's life seemed to happen while a sitcom was playing on the television in the room at the same time you know a lot of this wasn't wasn't really cashed out in terms of the the storytelling language the conceit itself i i want to um go into that and hear what everyone has to say about that. But, but first uh, I, I would like if it's okay to make a nomination. Um, you know, we talk about actors who work all the time and uh, we don't, um, we don't really add to the pantheon, but today uh, gentlemen, four gentlemen, I come before you uh, with a nomination and that is this resolved. Catherine Hahn is an actor who works. Uh 
Does anyone does anyone want to argue against that resolution, <laughs> or can I just make my case and pass it by acclamation? Hearing no, I answer. mean, do you have a case? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do, and it turns on a double meaning of actor who works. Like, not only has she been, uh, has she been working consistently for you know more than a decade now, like just incredible, um, incredible stuff from like uh, Crossing Jordan, or as she said in a recent interview, Crojo. Uh, all the way, uh, all the way up through this, uh, you know, with detours to, you know, prestige drama with Mark Ruffalo. And I know this much is true. And, uh, you know, detours into, um, all manner of different kind of style, stylistic things. It's the, um, it's the, it's not just, uh, that she's consistently employed. It's not just that she is, uh, sort of eager to ply her trade. Um, in or out of what we might consider prestige stuff and takes interesting jobs, even if it doesn't, you know, line up with, with, uh, what the, the sort of snobby and pretentious might consider worthwhile. But it's that she's an actor who works in that she, she like, she works in the way that a, uh, you know, that a, that a, a, a light switch works or a finely tuned automobile works. Like she performs, she fits, it, it goes well right like and in all kinds of genres uh in all kinds of you know all kinds of different levels of like realistic or, or stylized stuff anyway i i would like to nominate Catherine, uh Catherine han especially after this show going through all of the genres of the neighbors from the the jazzercise one to the 50s one to a like a a cackling wicked witch supervillain um and you know really sort of holding it together making it making it uh making it make sense so uh you know maybe maybe we put this out to a, a vote of the overthinking it listenership maybe we decided here on the podcast but i i just before we went on i had to say Catherine hahn actor who works no, no higher no higher accolade have we on overthinking it than, than i do want to say like the way that she did the the fake no 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 when they were having the salem witch uh flashback dream or whatever it was yeah versus the way that she did the real no 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 when uh she was about to get her comeuppance and then the kind of light switch from uh, tormented terror to back to the wacky neighbor persona was some really nice acting. Hey, there it is. Okay. Yeah, and she she had a number one hit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. I didn't even realize that was her singing on that until someone pointed it out to me that like, yeah, that, that, that 40 seconds of, <laughs> of, you know, um, uh, theme song was like number one on iTunes or something. And yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So, so in this case, she would join fellow Marvel actors that work, uh, Tilda Swinton, of course, and JK Simmons, any others that are in the pantheon here? Oh man, it's we haven't you haven't really fleshed out exactly who is in it. I don't. Think. I mean, I think Tilda Swinton was like the first. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she, yeah, she's she's the archetypical. But, right? I mean, come on, J.K. Simmons is God. Yeah. He's he's oh, yeah. he's literally won an Oscar, and he's also the yellow Eminem. <laughs> 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 of actor that works. Santa. 
Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe this is a future project. Maybe we need to do, you know, a um do an actual uh draft and have a you know, have a kind of Hall of Fame style thing. All right. Thank you for indulging me. I I appreciate you uh doing me doing me that kindness. Um let's uh let's let's push into the show. Do, does it I mean I don't know. Does I don't even know how, how to do this. I think it's it makes sense to say that our you know, our um our impression was that there were some things that didn't that didn't really pan out, uh, and yet we we enjoyed watching it anyway. Pete, maybe I can throw this to you. Like, what was the aspect of it? What did the show succeed at, uh, despite kind of devolving into CGI punching and a, and a sad goodbye at a portal? Um, what did the show succeed at uh, that that made us care even in the end? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I think the question is a little bit you're providing a little bit too much information in the question. The question is, what did it succeed at? And I think the answer is that it made us care. Uh, if you want to say, what did it succeed at in order to make us care that I think you have to get down to the nuts and bolts of how their show worked. But I think and I know I know we do want to talk about expectations, because when we last podcasted about WandaVision and we were talking about the very first couple episodes, we were talking about the immediate expectation that was set up that this was a riddle mystery show where they were going to encourage people to come up with fan theories, right? And it was going to be really pressing into this sort of mysterious Westworldy genre of show. And we we're going to see how the Marvel Cinematic Universe did that. But what we ended up getting was a much more psychodramatic, uh, you know, we saw characters when they were vulnerable. We saw characters caring about each other, right? And at this point, Wanda Maximoff and Vision, who had previously been maybe a little bit more of a cipher than they'd been previously in the previous Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. If you go back and try to watch Infinity War now after watching WandaVision, it's it's tough, right? Because you feel for them so much. At least I did, right? Going back and watching the uh, the fight in the train station in Scotland where you know the Black Order is descending on Wanda and Vision, and Vision has been horribly stabbed and lost his ability to, to phase. And it looks like they're about to, Wanda's about to go down in a blaze of glory when all of a sudden Captain America shows up to rescue her, right? Spoilers, I guess. Like, that scene plays so much more intensely now for me than it did when it started, uh, when I saw it, right? Because when I saw it, I mean, I, I care about them, I guess, but, like, they didn't have that kind of lead-in and I think what it speaks to is, OK, all those other lead in movies that we all watched, you know, because you've see, heard the podcast about them that led up to those big crossover movies. They did accomplish something because we can now see in retrospect, we can see it added in retrospect. We can see that the character development in this show has gotten us more invested in these characters. And it's fleshed out Wanda Maximoff's character, you know, the Scarlet Witch. She's had her I am Iron Man moments and she's ready to be in other movies. Uh, but I mean, that would be what I would suggest. I mean, what about what about the other folks on the call? It's not just you and me, Matt. What do, what do other people think they got out of what? Oh, God, thanks. WandaVision? thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. Appreciate the reminder. <laughs> I know it's easy to forget. Right. Uh, but we have many esteemed fellows on this uh, on this podcast. Does, do you guys get anything out of this show in particular? I mean, I, you know, well, I, I would I, say that. You go first, Jordan. I'm going to feel whatever you say. I would say, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that the even if they didn't quite cash out the lots of different TV sitcoms thing successfully, it was real great while it lasted. 
and I, I'm not sure that that actually. Well, do we judge that on whether it was successfully cashed out? In order for that to have been a fun device that really made you think and surprised you and entertained you and had you saying, "I got that reference." Does it have to actually add up to anything, or is it fine that it was great for five episodes and then and then got abandoned? This is actually a fairly deep question because uh, I think that one of the things that people complain about the most in TV writing these days um, is mystery box plotting. And the general read on that kind of thing is that it's terrible because there's never any payoff. And yet, those first couple of episodes always are super compelling, right? And you could ask yourself, like, well, does it matter if there's no payoff? If you get those compelling episodes reliably enough, couldn't it just sort of be good and then stop being good? And that would be the shape that a TV show had. And my answer to that with mystery box plotting is no. And yet this, because it it wasn't a cliche yet, maybe, I want to look back on fondly. And I think that it's kind of great. I loved watching all those different sitcom parodies. Mm. I mean, I would I would suggest maybe that to revise a little bit, because I hear what you're saying also, that the problem with mystery box plotting might not necessarily be that there's no payoff, but rather that the feeling of betrayal that you've been lied to, the notion that information that's been given to you means it means something different than what it did or is meaningless when it should have meant something. And and I don't feel like this that WandaVision was lying to us necessarily. I feel like the individual episodes early on the detail in there, it was there and it worked and it did feed the plot. Right. And it, and it, and it felt, I mean, I thought they were really interesting exercises in, in cinematics, right. In, uh, in TV, you know, so I thought it was, they were interesting for their own sake uh, as well. well. But I don't know. I'm curious what you guys for, think. Well, Pete, I think there was one instance where they really did lie to us, which was the Quicksilver fake out. True. Right? True. So, so there's one episode in the middle that ends with a cliffhanger where uh, there's a knock on the door and the wrong Quicksilver, right? The Quicksilver from the other franchise opens the door. And obviously everybody goes nuts speculating on what it means because we know being, you know, diehard Marvel fans that Marvel, uh, Disney now owns 20th Century Fox and that this could be a merging of the universes. Now at the very end, they leaned away from this fully and they just explained it by being like, this guy is just, uh, was a resident of the town and it was just a body that she happened to take possession of. So there's no suggestion at all that there's anything fishy about that particular appearance so why did they do that how like why why did they they tease us there on purpose and and was it a mistake i mean i'm holding i'm I'm the idiot holding out hope thinking actually they're going to do the double double cross at some point (laughs) right (laughs) because because jimmy woo never identified who his witness in the town was like why was the fbi dispatched to this town for some mysterious person of importance that lives there that was never identified right like i don't know so you you Um, feel like it might still be a i I don't know if if that is ralph boner his real name i guess it might be but it seems like a fake name (laughs) (laughs) but no i'm 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 in denial is what i am right i'm i'm just saying like you know i don't know here's here's an interesting thing so way way back iron man 3 which was forever ago there was a similar fake out that the audience didn't receive well which was about the the mandarin 
right? Oh, that was so this good, was, though. Did the audience right, really not so like that? So I, I liked it fine, right? Yeah. Where where Sir Ben Kingsley, this epic, I guess spoilers for Iron Man 3, if that's still in effect. <laughs> Sir Ben Kingsley is this sort of epic actor, and he's playing this arch-terrorist who at one point in the movie gets the president of the United States on the phone and and uh, gives him an ultimatum on national TV or else he's going to kill somebody. In front, you know, like really, really intense stuff. And it turns out that, that it was a massive fake out that the person that we thought was the Mandarin was, in fact, just a actor who was hired to play the role of the Mandarin to uh, be like a front from the uh, the guy from Memento. Um, now, here's the deal. So everyone didn't like the idea that, like, we're not going to get a comic book accurate Mandarin. But then what happened is that shortly after the movie was released, Marvel at this point was doing these short films. This is back when DVDs were a thing and they used to release DVDs and they, you know, with bonus content. And they used to do this thing called Marvel one shots. Um, never really amounted to much, but they did a Marvel one shot with Sir Ben Kingsley where I don't, I feel like I saw it once, but basically the gist is that maybe there's a real Mandarin out there and he doesn't take kindly to Sir Ben Kingsley besmirching his good name and it feels like that's Marvel maybe sort of like trying to take lemons and make lemonade. The idea is like, oh, fans didn't really love what we did with the Mandarin. Maybe we just walk it back. Maybe we just like, oh, there's there's another the Mandarin that you want is out there, too. All things are possible. So you get to you get to have your fake Mandarin and your real Mandarin so that like I could kind of see them doing this if they feel like there's enough backlash from the uh, the Quicksilver switcheroo that. Because they they could at any point they could they could decide that like you know maybe there are two Quicksilvers now in the universe and maybe maybe Rob Boner is a was a, a double fake out so that like Pete is not wrong to hold out hope um, but at the same time it, it seems clear that like you know as of today it was a fake out right and I guess. If you're like a writer, if you're a director for the show, was that a smart move? Because it just feels that like obviously people are going to feel they're not going to be happy you fake them out. So why do it? I I mean I don't know. Do they? Is that how they they think? <laughs> I mean I'm not I'm not well, sure. Like, I mean do you think like they're, nobody they're... made them? Nobody made them cast that. First of all, I'm assuming that they could have gotten back the actor who played her brother. You know, he's not like a giant, you know, he hasn't become a giant star in the years since. I don't I don't feel like they couldn't afford him. Right. So they chose not to bring back the guy who played her brother, um, which would have been like the kind of the obvious thing to do. Right. Is like bring in somebody that she knows and trusts to get her to confide. And instead, they went out of their way to cast this other guy to mislead the audience and I just, I just wonder, like, to what end? Like, yeah, why I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, the in-universe explanation is that it's Agatha, and it's all along. And I wonder, like, if, hmm, I wonder if it wasn't um, them kind of trolling. I, I, you know, I wonder if it wasn't kind of an imitative form kind of thing. Like, there, as uh, as Agatha trolls Wanda throughout the the series, so too do the writers of WandaVision troll us. Uh, the uh, a little bit, but I, you know, um, the but it goes back to this. I mean, it goes back to this thing that that Jordan says, which I uh, which I think was really interesting, which was that like if you know, let's let's call it the Stokes hypothesis, you know, that like the the recognition itself is supposed to be pleasurable enough, right? So in that case, the kind of the the recognition of 
um, of the, the fact that it's the other actor from the other, from the, the Fox X-Men, um, reboot, the second Fox cinematic, X-Men cinematic universe, um, that like it's, it's, uh, that it's him that just seeing that just knowing it um having the knowledge and then kind of acknowledging that it, that it happened is the sort of source of pleasure and satisfaction and and that's enough and that does kind of create a completely different recognition of the um you know of the real of the the clues you know it it makes them not clues to a larger thing it makes them kind of clues to themselves and so as you know uh, and so like uh, you can imagine a conversation where someone keeps keeps like dropping references to things and it it's uh, you, the correct response being like reference acknowledged witty banterer right and that's uh that's about the level that it's operating at as opposed to um as opposed to adding up to something like, you know, being kind of small pieces of a sort of larger obscure truth um, that is like mystery story wise, Sherlock Holmes wise, that is supposed to be, uh, you know, that, that is supposed to be um, the, the, the big reveal. Uh, Jordan, I put words in your mouth with the Stokes hypothesis. So do you want (laughs) to, I should feel like I should let you take it from here. Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, thank you. I'll be taking credit for that and putting it on my CV. Uh, Second, I think that we could kind of imagine a continuum where on the one hand you have – I'm trying to think of the most egregious thing possible. And this is tough because I never actually watched all of Lost. But I feel like Lost has to be the most egregious thing possible where at the end of season one when like the numbers in the hatch start switching over to Egyptian hieroglyphics and everyone goes, what is going on? And as far as I remember, the answer is nothing. That was just mysterious for the sake of being mysterious. You got to recognize that those were Egyptian hieroglyphics and you thought that was cool, right? So that is um, that is the most a betrayal of the audience's ability to recognize pattern and get references. And then on the other hand, you have the fact that in a couple now of the more cosmically themed Marvel movies, you have gotten cameos by Howard the Duck. And nobody, literally nobody was saying like, oh, they're setting up the Howard the Duck crossover. The most that you got was, hey, that's Howard the Duck. Ha <laughs> ha. Reference acknowledged. And then you can ask yourself, where does fake Pietro fall on this scale, right? Is it lost? Is it Howard the Duck? I tend to agree, actually, with uh, with Matt Belenke that it felt like kind of a betrayal, that there was no point to it being the same actor from the X-Men Pietro. Uh, but I think it's interesting to sort of wonder why that might be. Like, is it because this show was setting itself up as a big show about mysteries? Is it because we kind of have a hankering for X-Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we saw that path and we wanted that path followed, whereas there is no hankering for a Howard the Duck Cinematic Universe? So that, that's kind of my uh, my thought process on it. Um, but I think that we can, you know, let's pass it around. Who else has a thought? I have kind of a mundane explanation, which is that this show's production was interrupted by the pandemic. Um, and so they obviously had to pause and then picked it up. Um, and, and my, my deep in my gut, um, between the Pietro fake out, between the fact that like the, the, all of our, the side characters we come to know and love, uh, got very short shrift at the end of it. Um, I really want to believe that they had a lot more planned out and that these plans did not come to fruition, um, for like these kind of mundane logistical, 
reasons. And, you know, it, it, so in that regard, then, you know, this, this, this television show is reflecting the hardships of our, um, of our reality in a way that I guess might be a little bit apropos, but that's the best that I've got so far. <laughs> I, I would, I would. So the, uh, the the sequence of TV parodies was like you got up to the 2000s and then they had the parody of the 2010s, 2020s sitcom, which was canceled due to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a really, really great Sopranos episode they didn't do. <laughs> what, what would they have done for the 2020s? Yeah, it was like it just it was just going to be a Ratatouille TikTok musical. That was just going to be the whole thing. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I guess the 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 seminal sitcom of twenty of the twenty twenties was actually canceled. I'm thinking of the Connors. Um. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's going to be it was going to be like borderline racist, and then they were going to just it was just going to go black screen in the middle of the episode. <laughs> it's like, oh no, Mephisto has canceled the Marvel universe. <laughs> Call Doctor Strange. The show wasn't uh, borderline racist. I mean, it's not the last man standing. Come on, but like the the the, the actress had bad reaction to to some some ambient. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I, I mean, I guess Jordan. Then, like, the thing is, like, why, why these references, you know, and and why now, right? Like, it's which is, I suppose, a kind of it's a kind of moving the goalposts. Is is that question? Like, why? Okay, so why make these references? And now I want to now I want to create a narrative out of um, why this particular set of references is is the the ones that that we're choosing to acknowledge and I, i'm just kind of moving the mystery goal but i'm i'm like true sherlocking i'm like uh you know moving the 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 mystery box <laughs> goalposts it's uh it's like the the episode of of the next generation where they they uh where picard is kidnapped it's one of the great picard is kidnapped episodes uh but he finds himself in the room with four other people or with three other people and and uh they they, they finally force the door open only to reveal another door behind it. So <laughs> I'm kind of doing that with the, with, with my questions. I don't, I don't know. Like oh, the, I mean, I'll, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I have to, I mean, I, I do have to say like, I, I do feel a little disappointment in the conceit, not adding up to a thing more than, more than the conceit, or it did add up to something. I mean, it did, it added up to the idea that, that Wanda was traumatized and the, the sitcoms reflected a kind of idealized version of family that was sort of free from, free from violence. Like they're watching Malcolm in the middle and, and, uh, the, uh, the, what the awning collapses on poor Brian Cranston. And it's like, is he hurt? No, this is not the kind of show where people get hurt, right? And then it's also like, you know, with living parents who can like be loving and take care of their children and who are, you know, not killed by a war and, and that kind of stuff. But just like, oh, sitcoms represent the, an, an idealized version of family. I don't know. It's, it, it seems a little thin, especially when, you know, $200 million was expended trying to, uh, bring the bring the conceit to life, and I, you know, I gotta, you gotta say that that matters, you know. Um, and anyway, sorry, Jordan, I'll give you the last. Can I, can I jump in? That like the notion of the sitcom family being a kind of heaven. I have a 
this sort of my, I guess this is, I should have done this for the question at the beginning, a wish for how they could have done something, which is when they, when she tells Agatha, like you get to be the nosy sitcom neighbor forever now, if they had managed to sell that convincingly as a kind of hell, maybe by having her like run away and like run inside her house. And then she comes in to like, she's in the fifties house. She runs through another door. Now she's in the sixties house. Right. So that it starts off with being in a sitcom, being, the heaven that you retreat to and ends with the sitcom being the hell that you're imprisoned in. That would have been a nice way to cash things out. I feel like. Yeah. And I'll, right. Also give, give her a, like another, uh, as though she needed another, another moment. It was really about that. I, I guess like we're also maybe ignoring what was meant to be the big reveal, which is that, and we're ignoring it because everyone sort of sussed it out very early on, I think, which is that she's Agatha Harkness. Right. And that that was like that that was supposed to be the the big secret. And and we're sort of giving short shrift to that um, and saying, like, well, where where was the big secret? Where was the big reveal? And it's like, you guys, that's we. we... But I I also feel like they lean they leaned away from that, that that after the episode where she sort of reveals herself and they have the fun jingle about how it was Agatha all along. I was spinning out all these theories about like, okay, so why was Agatha doing this? Maybe it was about the kids, right? That she was creating this whole thing so they could create these magical kids conceived, you know, in this parallel, you know, that, that are the, the gateways. To, but it actually, like, Agatha wasn't in control of very much. The whole point was that Agatha wanted to know how it was done and steal the power. So I feel like, she, you know, she was in control of things like the, the fake Pietro. But I don't know. I, I just sort of feel like... Like, you could have almost told the story without Agatha Harkness at all. You could have just been like, she gradually has to realize that the world that she's living in is a twisted fantasy that she's created for herself to hide in. And it's hurting real people. And she has to come to the point where she realizes that she needs to, um, you know, put an end to it, even a great personal loss. And that the Agatha Harkness thing was just there because they needed to fight. But like that wasn't the emotional core or even the real conflict. Huh. It's also kind of like, for whom is it a big reveal that this character is Agatha Harkness? That's not a a name that a lot of people have rattling around in the back of their heads. I guess if you are a, a Scarlet Witch fan from back in the day, she's a pretty important side character there. But it's not like spider-man right uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that many people hearing it was agatha all along said immediately oh agatha like agatha harkness her old nemesis yeah. yeah that's the answer to your question jordan that you posed which is why does it not feel like a betrayal that the reveal of howard du- the duck in an after credit scene didn't result in the launch of a howard duck franchise well because the expectations for what's going to happen to these characters are related to outside knowledge and circumstances that are unrelated to the movie you're currently watching, right? Like the audience has some sort of knowledge or expectation that's going to be framed around this character or even stuff that's inside of it, right? What information do you have that might lead you to think that this person might be important is some of it. But the bigger one is like, we don't really expect there to be a Howard the Duck movie because we know about the other Howard the Duck movie. And then it was a horrible failure. Right? So like, <laughs> guys, it's so fun. You gotta watch that. Yeah, you gotta watch that Howard the Duck movie. It's really fun. Failure, like, I will give you. Horrible. Well, I thought. Sorry, I meant that in terms of intensity of financial losses, not in terms of uh, you know lack of cultural revelation that's enriched all of our lives. <laughs> Weirdly intense furry sex scenes. 
uh, that was Agatha all along. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> uh, uh. But you know, it's 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 well because it's really about do, is it saying that they care or is it saying that they don't care? I think that that's that there's a relationship between the show and the audience that's trying to tell the audience whether they matter, right? And and uh, and I think that there's a feeling sometimes that the show has told you you don't matter after you've told the show that it matters to you. And, you know, obviously the show isn't a real person, so maybe this is, you know, comical or tragic. But, you know, it kind of sucks to be told <laughs> so you don't matter. So you're saying that we should... <laughs> That we should just say a nice goodbye to the show and then walk out of its bedroom and leave it to be eaten by the encroaching red wall. <laughs> I'm just saying that if there needs to be a Howard the Duck movie and I will accept no substitute. <laughs> I've, revi- I've upwardly revised. I've upwardly revised my expectations uh, <laughs> through the litigation of this dispute. What uh, uh, if by the crushing red wall you mean the Netflix logo, the Netflix loading <laughs> screen? Then you know. Oh, we're still inside the hex, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not not to, again. The theories aren't the whole point of the whole thing, but I will say, like Jimmy Woo had a bunch of questions on a whiteboard behind him. That's like, what don't we know? Which you could very clearly think of as, okay, maybe these are things that Jimmy Woo is going to try to figure out at some point in the show. And one of them they figured out, which is why are there sitcoms, right? Uh, Or at least we figured it out. But like the other questions are like, why are there hexagons? Like, is the time passing at the same rate inside the hex as it's passing outside the hex? Right. These are all interesting questions that are relevant. And it's strange to have like a cop point out that they're important and then like have them not addressed. That is just weird. It just feels like, yeah. You know what I wanted to know that we never got any answer? Do we see all the episodes of WandaVision? Or are there like hundreds of – was it like the Truman <laughs> Show where it's broadcasting nonstop? Oh. It's like Groundhog Day where it really lasted for 10,000 years. Those like very... five episodes are the only ones that exist and like what was going on in there when they, when they weren't broadcasting? Was the feel of it any different? Yeah, so the related thing to this, so do we get an explanation as to why it's even being broadcast at all? Right. It's one thing just to like, you know, um, have this artificial reality and all, you know, the, the 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 physical trappings of being in a television show and the experience of it. But it's a completely different thing than to enact, you know, um, the whatever you need to do in the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum to broadcast it out. Was that intentional or was that some kind of like weird side effect that uh, um, that no one was like Wanda was not uh, really counting on anybody. Well, picking g- up on. Given, given Mark, the idea that the kind of the psychological reveal, which was that this was sort of a traumatic response to, to pain and loss, you know, uh, what was it not a cry for help? You know, really is not every sitcom a cry in in a way. I'm a, I'm gonna go ahead and say in a way every sitcom is a cry for help. Yeah, nobody loves Raymond. That's the joke. <laughs> um, no, but to answer your question, I mean it's tricky because to answer these questions, we have to go deeper into the theories, which I guess we're supposed to think now don't matter unless they're going to show up in the next Doctor Strange movie or something, right? Which is that well, the show is being broadcast in the bandwidth of the. Of the microwave radiation background of the creation of the universe, right? Like, so that's why it's being broadcast because it is trackable in, in like the the like core information that that happens when a universe is created, 
right? That's like the astrophysical explanation, I suppose, even although it's a bit normative, right? Like maybe background radiation doesn't always indicate the beginning of a universe, right? Um, but was this a un- was this even a universe, right? What, what, what even was it that happened? We don't know, right? It was uh, she created it. It went away. It'll never are, be answered. It is heavily implied that Wanda went so far as creating like a proper set with cameras and lights and seats for an audience. Yeah. As well. Like that is a lot of trouble to go through. <laughs> so I have an interesting thought actually that might go again to this uh, to this question of whether it's lost or whether it's Howard the Duck, which is when there's an explanation for something that's been a mystery on the show, does that explanation have consequences going forward? Because I was just thinking, so like, why is it a TV show, right? And if you think that it's something to do with the background radiation of the universe, and this is going to tie into the next Doctor Strange movie, right? That's an explanation that has forward-reaching consequences of some kind. Here's an explanation which I think kind of tracks, but would have absolutely no forward-reaching consequences, which is Wanda wanted to live in a TV show Wanda knows what TV shows are. Therefore, when she made this dream world, which was a TV show, it did all the things that TV shows do, including have characters that act in these particular ways, but also have commercials, have sets, have broadcast. So it just like it filled in those details because that's what it means to be a TV show. She didn't want to live in a life that is like I Love Lucy. She wanted to live in I Love Lucy with everything that that implies. But that has no forward-reaching consequences. And therefore, I think, it sounds like kind of a cheap explanation. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd buy that. I'd buy that for a dollar. It's <laughs> <laughs> talking about diegetic TV shows. Speaking so of, what, yeah, yeah. Speaking of, speaking of uh, beloved secondary characters, um, the uh, yeah, the, the idea... I guess, yeah, Jordan, the idea of forward, forward reaching consequences is a good one to, uh, is probably a good heuristic for the sorts of mystery box type moves that satisfy us versus the ones, the ones that don't satisfy us. And, and just to be clear, when you say Howard the Duck, you don't mean, Howard the Duck, the, the film masterpiece. You mean Howard the Duck showing up in some Marvel after credit, uh, after credit scenes, right? And like the reference just being okay, uh, being okay, being, being a reference because, um, you know, the, the, the thing is like to, to what extent? Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. Like we, we want like Darcy the escape artist, right? Like we, we want the writers to sort of pull off a, to pull off a, a magic trick, right? Like, and to kind of, um, to kind of constrain and constrain and constrain and constrain possibility until, you know, boom, out comes, out comes something like Aristotle said, it's surprising and inevitable. It's surprising and yet in retrospect it seems inevitable. Um, and, and we want them to do that without a portal, right? Like without a, uh, just a kind of a, a magical solution importing, importing rules. And so the idea of satisfying something that is a plot that is satisfying, you know, is, uh, is that like, do, do we abide by, are we constrained by the consequences of this thing? Uh, going forward and, you know, come hell or high water, are we going to live with this? Are we going to live with this like supremely inconvenient, uh, uh, reality that, that we've established? Are we going to be Jack Nicholson in Chinatown and do the whole rest of the movie with a nose bandage on? 
right? Like covering, covering the face of the movie star with a bandage because that's what we, you know, because that's what we, we agreed to. That's the premise that we agreed to in the, in the, the first half of the movie. And I guess we sort of want, because these are like, we think of these as, um, as mysteries maybe. And also because we think of these as science fiction, mysteries and science fiction are two things we think of as being heavily rule based. And so the, the establishment and the, the sort of surprising revel resolution of, of rules is something that's, that is really important in the genres that the, the writers have kind of um, corralled us, corralled us into. I'm not sure if we go forward from that, but uh, it it definitely I I think you've provided a good discursive tool for figuring out you know what for like get, get, bringing to light what might be behind some of our reactions to these uh, things. Uh, Matt, since you brought up rules, I'm going to also uh, pick piggyback on that, on that thought, um, which is that uh, in the in the big CGI climactic magic duel thing, right? Um, we are reminded of rules that were set for several episodes ago. Right, you know, there's something about the runes. You know, the the, the if a witch casts uh, runes in a room, only she can cast the spells. Right, and like that was, you know, it was certainly tarot telegraphs was an important detail then, and then it becomes like hugely important at the very end. But I think to your point, that reinforces like you know, this show is setting up, you know, that uh, this discourse around rules, things that matter, um, reveals. Uh, an internal logic, and uh, we just uh, reeled off a bunch of different instances where um, the logic is broken or things that the rules don't fully play out. And yeah, it's it's completely understandable why we are we are nit- nitpicking at it, even though we enjoyed the whole thing. Mark, you remember we used to talk a ton about a Babylon Five solution to a Star Trek problem. Mm-hmm. It's like Go on. I think this is this is a textbook. This is a Doctor Strange solution to a WandaVision problem. Go on. Right. Which, this is a series about somebody who finds themselves living inside a television world that follows television rules. To me, like the most sort of fun and interesting and electric moment of the series is when she's in this really tense argument with Vision and she tries to end it by rolling the credits. And Vision <laughs> oh, just sort of yeah. smashes through the credits. Right. And so it's this moment where it's sort of like both playful with the sort of cliches and conventions of television, but also sort of like suggests that you could just sort of, you could sort of fight, fight off the cliches if you're powerful enough. And by the end of the show, it's completely dropped, right? The Westview that they're living in, in the final episode, when they, when they go out to the town square and they see everybody is like no recognizable sitcom, right? There, it basically is no longer a television show. It's just an idyllic suburban town, and it could have been all along. Honestly, you could imagine this is like a, an extended episode of the Twilight Zone where it looks like Wanda and Vision have retired to the suburbs and are living a perfect life, except for something's not right. Right. But instead, they they went for something a lot more fun and unusual where Wanda and Vision are inside a bunch of sitcom parodies. And I wish they had stuck with that to the bitter end. And it turned out that the way to beat Agatha wasn't to play by her rules and to figure out, okay, so how do witches win witch fights? And like, you know, honestly, I don't even know how the Scarlet Witch knows what runes are. It's not like she studied these things, but she does know how TV shows work. Um, I mean, honestly, like it was, what was it? That was from um, Infinity War where, uh, you know, Tony Stark sort of says, it's like, yeah, but the kids see more movies than you. And they, they get him by uh, exploiting the, uh, what is it? The alien the, the alien yeah. trick is how they suck him out the window. And it's like, I almost wish that 
at the end, what had happened is that like uh, Wanda realizes that she, there's no way that she could beat Agatha in a straight up magic fight because Agatha is a better magician than her. However, they're living in a television world that Wanda controls. And if Wanda can sort of use the her knowledge of TV, her her let's let's accept the show at its word when when they tell us that Wanda is a television nut and has an encyclopedic episode by episode knowledge of classic television that she should be able to conjure up the I'm, I'm just trying to think of like you know how you use that but there's got to be like a lot of fun ways that you can just sort of like use television to win the fight she traps Agatha next to a conveyor belt where chocolates are just zooming down at her and she's got to <laughs> put them in Boxes. Man, who's the boss? Didn't have too many like Morgana Le Fay style reversals. But <laughs> <laughs> I would be totally into but it. I, it <laughs> I do think you're right, Matt. That would have been the most satisfying way for the fight to work out. I kind of liked the rune thing, but I would have liked the she uses her knowledge of TV to win the fight way, way more. Yeah, the one thing I could think of is that because honestly, it, it ties into something that I, I think a lot of people have mentioned, which is why didn't Doctor Strange show up? Just because it seems like the kind of thing that might be worth him, you know, rolling out of bed for. Um, the fact that like a substantial portion of New Jersey with thousands of people inside is is now uh, contained within. And honestly, I'm sure they can. They I'm sure they can come up with an explanation of. It. And Doctor Strange too. There might be a reason why. He couldn't. Maybe he can't see chaos magic, right? It's like somehow outside his his purview. Um, but I, I think like one interesting way because she that is that she realized that she needs to conjure up the words and spe- and feature a special guest star, Doctor Strange, and conjure them in the sky, and that allows him to penetrate the spell. Right, that like she needs to invite him into her TV world, and then he's been like waiting outside the bounds of the spell for her to figure it out, and then as soon as that happens, he can enter. But I, I realize like why they wouldn't want to do that because honestly, it's Wandavision; it's her fight to win. Having the bigger movie star come in and save the day wouldn't feel satisfying on another level. But I kind of like the idea that you know that that sort of like you know why why isn't the greatest magician in the world helping me oh wait because like i, I need to um i need to write him into this finale but i like i like that matt because there's like a double dramatic irony like there's a dramatic irony of the audience knowing what's going on in the character not and then there's the dramatic ar- uh, irony of the you know your proposed doctor strange sitting outside watching the tv show as it were knowing what's going on and the character not uh and how that you know um and like uh, kind of taking on the role of a spectator. Oh, I hope she figures it out. I hope she figures it out. Uh, wait, don't go down into the basement. <laughs> don't go down into the basement, right? Like actually, so there, there's another thing that, that another kind of TV trope, uh, if you will, that the, the show did not, um, uh, engage people like people watch TV shows. Uh, and the idea that like there were a couple of throwaway Kat Dennings lines about how she was like getting hooked on, on WandaVision. And I think maybe she like it brought a tear to her eye at one time, like a sentimental moment. But like people, people, you know, in, in the era that these shows, uh, some of these shows were, they were like appointment viewing for a whole family. You know, the, the, the idea that like you'd, you'd all sit down, you'd have popcorn or a dessert or something. And you watch the watch the TV and like the, a relationship with spectators and and the idea of like spectatorship also would have been a kind of an enriching phenomenon as well in the uh, in the WandaVision universe. 
I'm just imagining a whole bunch of voices in her head telling her not to cancel it because it's their favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I also do kind of wish that in the scene where she was surrounded by all the people from Westview and they're all like, you're torturing us, you're murdering us, for there to be one person who's like, I kind of like my new life. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the, that's what, that's the Simpsons person. (laughs) That's the like, you know. um, Yeah, that's Hans Bowman. Oh man, you know what would have been awesome? Would have been at the end if instead of making the hex go away, Wanda collapsed it so that it fit on a DVD. And she put WandaVision on DVD. (laughs) (laughs) Or in like a VHS cassette. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a battered VHS cassette that she could like keep under her mattress or something. And like Uh, like the kids would be in there and Vision would be in there and Agatha would be in there. Right. And if she ever wanted to talk to them, she would put she would play the video. Which is what which kind of goes to some of the confusion that we were feeling at the end about like what happened to Agatha. Like it she's in real Westview, but she's as a sitcom character. Uh Right. Like the, it, it, it had a tr- trouble tracking. And if she was just like, uh, imprisoned like Zod, you know, that like, um, but on a, you know, but on a DVD that like it was, uh, yeah, that would have, that would have worked, uh, worked pretty well. Um, you know, or, you know, what, what, uh, <laughs> what happens at the end of a lot of television shows when you're when you remember that you know despite feeling bad because you're being separated from your favorite characters that they're all coming back uh they're all coming back next week um or some you know some play on cancellation uh Matt bring us home would would you I feel like this is a show in which People were constantly discussing whether or not Wanda was the bad guy, right? That whether she is the villain, uh, an extreme example of that is Hayward, who actually wants to kill her, right? He actually tries to take her out with a drone because she is enslaving thousands of people, right? And she needs to be stopped at any cost. And then there are people like Monica who are much more sympathetic, who's like, okay, maybe she is enslaving thousands of people, but... She's going through a difficult time, guys, so let's give her some space to work through it. And I feel like I wanted there to be some consequences. I honestly thought at the end that she was going to, as as ridiculous as the idea of holding her in custody is, because obviously she can reshape reality as she sees fit, it feels like there should be some consequences because she's done, even if even if you want to say that like she did this entirely accidentally, the fact that she could do things like this without realizing it is extremely concerning. And also, I think the show made it clear that well after the point where she realized that she was in control, she kept it going because she wanted to keep it going. And I I do think that, like, as she continues to be part of the Marvel Universe, because we all know that she's coming back in Doctor Strange 2, she'll have to make amends for that, that she will have to apologize and she'll have to you know, uh, spend some time in the in the Black Widow doghouse with a little red on her ledger, a little uh, uh, scarlet on her ledger before that she could be like a, a full out good guy again. But I I didn't love the idea that she just sort of flies off at the end to go do whatever instead of facing the music, because I felt like if there was one theme of the series, it was facing reality versus hiding in a fantasy. Yeah. It's it. There is nothing I will say though, Matt, more sitcommy than just resetting to the baseline reality at the end of every episode. Fair enough. 
which is what we do here on the Overthinking It podcast. Because though we leave, we'll be back next week with all your favorite, or at least some of your favorite Overthinking It podcast characters. So thanks very much for listening to uh, to Matt, to Pete, to Mark, and to Jordan. Thanks for appearing on the podcast and discussing WandaVision. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. That was truly the multiverse talking. Previously on the Overthinking It podcast, Guys, I don't think this Marvel Cinematic Universe thing is going to work. I mean, this Thor movie was weak sauce. I think it's going to collapse under its own weight. Ha ha ha, it is I, Ira Glass, coming to Deus Ex Machina to change everything. (laughs) (laughs) Ira Glass? (laughs) I don't know. You come up with a better one. Joe Rogan? Who is it? I can't do the cereal lady. Uh, Hello. Oh, because we're a podcast. Oh, mystery box opened, fellow podcasters. It's Ira Glass all the way down.